Now, this morning, we turn to the second of the three parables that Matthew 25 is composed of. And this is the parable of the talents. Um, Before we read it, um, a couple comments about what talents are. As English speakers today, we think talents are God-given abilities um, that we're supposed to use in a responsible way. And it's very interesting that the word talent in English comes from the Greek word talentos. In other words, here is another example of hundreds and hundreds of examples in the English language where Christians had more faith in the language of Scripture than they had in their own language. And so what they did was they looked at the language of Scripture and they said, in English, we need that concept and that word. So they looked at the Greek word talent, and it doesn't mean in Greek some ability God gave you. In Greek, what it means is it's a unit of weight. And so it's like a pound, British pound, or it's like a ton, because actually it's quite a bit of weight. But it's understood from the story Jesus tells that it's a weight of money. And so look at it. A certain master gave talents to his slaves, all right? And the the English speakers say talents. Well, then they're responsible for using those talents, that weight of money. A ton of money. And so what they do is they take the Greek word talentos and they bring it into English and you've got the English word talent. Now, what application does that have for us? Well, what it shows us is that we as Christians are cowards today. Because today we not only take words from Scripture and bring them into English language, but what we do is the words that are in the English language that people hate, we run from them. Have you ever thought about that? They were so confident in Scripture that a Greek word they simply brought into the English language, and now if somebody says he's talented, you know what it means. And you don't think a unit of weight in Greek. You think, well, the story Jesus told. But today, if you talk about a man that leaves his wife behind and finds another woman and sleeps with her, you don't call it adultery. You call it what? An affair. You see, and I can go through it again and again and again and again and show you how the language of Scripture our world hates. You know, Sodom. What's Sodom? Well, it's being gay. Or homosexual. Certainly not Sodom. Not adultery, but affairs. And so what I want to start by doing is showing you that the word talent in English does not refer to a unit of weight of coinage. But it refers to a gift that God's given you that you have to be a steward of. That's how much people used to believe in the Bible. And so what you need to do is rejigger your brain so that you begin to love the actual language of Scripture and that you're obsessive-compulsive, not about washing your hands, but about the very words of Scripture. You don't let them wear you down. You don't let them rob you of your words that God has given you because the Bible is the very word of God. We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. A plenary session is a session. Everybody's there. We believe in the plenary. Every word verbal. Every word inspiration. Every word God breathed. So trust the language of Scripture. Trust the language of Scripture. Be an idiot and use the language of Scripture. All right, I'll get off that. A talent is a unit of weight, and how much is it before we read the account? Well, a talent, nobody really knows how much it was, but what we do know is that it wasn't a small amount. It was a very large amount. Um, The best guess, and a number of people agree on it, is that one talent is equivalent to probably about 20 years of manual laborers' wages. And so assuming that this laborer, this hypothetical laborer, is not in a union, then they probably, what, 25000 a year, 20000 a year, 10 bucks an hour maybe, 20000 let's say. So a talent would be 20 years of 20000 
So it would be almost half a million dollars. And that's the guy that didn't get anything or that only got one talent. So the guy that gets two talents gets what? 40 years. The guy that gets five talents gets 100 years of wages of a manual laborer. Now let's read the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For it, now what is it? Well, if you go back to the previous parable, Jesus starts it by referring to the kingdom of heaven. It is like. And so here Jesus doesn't go back and mention the kingdom of heaven again, but he simply uses the placeholder it. All right. For the kingdom of heaven, you're to understand, is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. So the rich man is going on a journey, and he gives each one of his three slaves a different amount. The first gets five talents, the second two, and the third one. Now, why the differing amounts? Well, we read in the text the reason. It says, each, in verse 15, what? Each according to his own ability. And so the master gave out the wealth to the slaves for their stewardship according to the ability of those three different slaves. Their master knew their capacities Their abilities, he gave to them an investment that they were to take and use according to those abilities, and then he departed. Now, in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for this to happen. Slaves were not simply uh, the brute labor that characterized the American South prior to the Civil War. Slaves were very responsible people and often were given amounts of money that they would use in order to produce a profit for their master. Sometimes the master would own it all. Sometimes the master would only uh, get a cut. Um, Maybe you can think a little bit of them as sharecroppers, but it wasn't unusual for them to be very highly skilled artisans, uh, for them to be uh, able to make a profit off of a business that uh, their master had capitalized. This is what's going on with this master. He's going off on a journey. He's not going to be able to be the steward of his money, so he gives it to the three slaves. 
He gives five talents to the first one. He gives two talents to the second one. And he gives no talents at all to the third one. Now, is that is that the case? No. It's not that he gave no talent to the third one. But the third one actually did have a talent. You can easily find yourself thinking that this third dude is like hopeless. You know, the master gave him nothing. No, the master gave him 20 years of a laborer's wages. In other words, if that man were to look accurately at what his master entrusted to him, instead of looking with envy at the other guys, he would recognize that he had a huge sum of money to take and to invest. So the master departed. These were not small amounts. Each man had the ability to do what he was able to do. Now, what do the slaves do in response? Well, we see what the slaves do in verse 16. You know, you tell your son to take the trash out, right? You tell your daughter to go in and set the table, right? And so, having been delegated a certain responsibility, what do you do? Well, the beginning of verse 16 has a word that you don't do. And the word is what? The word is immediately. That's the one thing that we never do. Verse 16, the master knew his guys well, didn't he? Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. The slave with the most ability proved it immediately. He lost no time using his five talents. He put them to work, using them as the capital with which he was to earn a profit for his master. The slave with the two talents did the same thing. He also put his talents to work, investing them wisely, and both of them produced a 100% profit. Now, what about the slave with the smallest ability? What did he do? Well, he dug a hole and he buried his capital. And it wasn't that he did not have a talent. He had a talent. 20 years wages, he buried it. That's the story. And then the master comes home. After a long time, it was enough time that there would be no excuses about not having enough time to get the job done. And when he came home, after a long time, he then did what? He settled his accounts. That's very, very difficult. There are many in this parable, there are many concepts that are very difficult for any American to understand. Often when I'm on my way over here to work in the week, I'm listening to the radio and um, I hear an ad, an ad for a company that exists to deny the fact that any, there will ever be a settling of accounts. The ad is for some company that tells you something that the credit card companies all in Wilmington, Delaware, don't want you to know. And that is that if you're aggressive and you hire a good soldier to fight for you, that you can get out of what? 20, 40 percent of your debt. So say you buy an iPod from Apple. Apple gets its money. That's why it has such large uh, reserves. The poor credit card company, though, uh, that's the one that you owe the money. And say it's a $150 iPod and you've racked up debt on your credit card, you can go to this company and you can ask them to negotiate the debt down, apparently. And they will go to Apple, and Apple will end up... um, No, not Apple, the credit card company. I'm sorry, it's getting confused. The credit card company will apparently agree to settle for, say, $100 of the $150 worth of debt. And that is about as close as many of us will ever get to settling accounts. Some of you have declared bankruptcy. Some of you have loved ones that have. 
think of the great putting off. I've talked to Jürgen, and Jürgen has told me that, well, I won't tell you what Jürgen has told me because it would scandalize you. But it, it was something along the lines that America, as long as people are willing to invest in America, things don't matter. All right, so we're doing well because everybody wants to invest in America. China's invested in America. So the modern world is built upon accounts never, ever, ever being settled. Do you agree? Africa, get rid of the debt. That's what we can do. You're in school. You don't do your work. Inflate the grades. The child's undisciplined in the classroom. Have the parent go in and yell at the assistant principal. The assistant principal will then go and yell at the teacher, and the teacher will then learn never, ever to cross the child. You know? We live in a great egalitarian world where our effort is made never, ever to settle the debts. Do you understand this? So whether it's bankruptcy, whether it's negotiating your credit card debt down, whether it's America having some, you know, gazillion amount of national debt, it's all this big shell game where you perpetually put off what? Settling the account. The master, after a long time, returns, and what happens? The accounts are settled. Okay? Verse 20, the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents. He had 100% return on the investment. And what does he say? He says, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Now, the word see in English doesn't carry the weight and the thrust of this. This dude is excited. He can't wait and it's something along the lines of, uh, of saying, look, or, or um, you know, behold, see, check it out, look. He has waited for that moment. That's what he's there for. He says, look what I've done. You entrusted five talents to me. Look, I've gained five more talents. And his master says to him, well done, good and faithful slave. Now, you all know this from the King James, which uses a euphemism here, and the euphemism is servant. It's not servant, slave. It's not some manservant walking around with a towel on his arm, living almost as well as the royalty that he takes care of. This is a slave, all right? Plain, ordinary slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. It's the same with the guy that got two talents. He, too, is excited to present his profit to his owner. See, look! And he spills the wealth out for his master's eyes with great pride. And so, too, his master rewarded him as he rewarded the first slave who had been given five talents and now had ten. The second slave is commended for a job well done. And then he was called a good and faithful servant, and he was rewarded with two things. First, that he would be put in charge of much more of his master's wealth. And second, that his master would welcome him into his joy. Now, I've said that much of this is um, completely impossible for us to understand today. And here we've arrived at a couple of more things that are impossible for us to understand. First of all, he is commended for being a good and faithful slave. And then he's rewarded in two separate ways. What are the two ways? Well, the two ways that he's rewarded are, verse 23, I will put you in charge of many things, and then second, enter into the joy of your master. Now, that's not hard to understand. Why am I saying we can't understand it? Everybody's working for the weekend. Y'all know that song? 
Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay called Why Work? And in her essay, she talks about how the modern world works so that it can stop working. Modern world has no vision of the dignity of labor. And so everybody's working for the weekend. It's so prominent that it's, it's given a name to a restaurant. Thank God it's Friday. TGIF. Now, again, how did the master reward the two faithful servants? <laughs> he rewarded them by giving them more responsibility. Does not compute. I mean, the whole point of work is what? The whole point of work is to do decreasing amounts the older you get, but to stay right above the threshold at which you'll be fired. And that point is the point where you want to exist. And the work you do at that point, the only point it has is to enable you to have enough money to party. And when you're young, your parties are grotesque and they're called fraternity parties. And when you're old, the parties are ever so much more sophisticated and they're called vacations. You know, when you're young, it's, it's, you know, car, guitar, like iPods. When you're old, it's houses and it's cars, but larger ones because we've, you know, we've gotten larger. And vacations. Everybody's working for the weekend. You work for those moments of time when you don't have to work. Right. So why did this master reward his faithful servants by giving them more responsibility? When I was in seminary, I've probably told you this story before, but I worked one day moving. And. I moved for a man. He was paying us probably back at that time five bucks an hour. And it was a hard job because it was a very humid day. It was summer. It was hot. And it was uh, a U-Haul trailer that went out into a messy yard. And then you walked across the yard with whatever you were carrying, and there wasn't grass. It was dirt. And then you climbed up outside this house, this Lattice work of, of wooden stairs on the outside of the house to the third floor. All right. And there were a couple of other seminary students there. We were working together and we got back to the truck one time and one of the seminary students looked at me and he said to me, I can't wait to get back to Africa. And I said, really, why? Why do you want to get back to Africa? He said, I would never have to do this work again. Ha, ha, ha. He really made me mad. I was furious. And I looked at him and I gave him a piece of my mind. I said, you know something? I said, that's the difference between Africa and the United States. I said, here, work is dignified. I said, we don't think a pastor's above working. And I went on like that for quite a while. And this man was probably 15 years older than I was. Um, but I would not normally have done that. Well, now, you know, I, I don't think you could even say that about America anymore, right? Our working is, you know, somebody that works hard, like, does late at night. A software coder, <laughs> you know. What is our work today? You know, there's a whole understanding of work that's behind this parable. And the understanding of work is that work is a gift to be given. And that the more work that you're given by God, by your master, the more privileged you are. That being given additional responsibility, did you notice the reward? The reward is 
You were faithful with a few things. None of them got a few things, but that's how large the reward was. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And so if we're going to be biblical, we've got to change our thinking about work. And we've got to realize that work is a privilege. And we have to pray that God will give us work that we love. That's faith. Don't let anybody tell you that you're going to spend your life being a drone. Why would you want to be a drone? You know what a drone is? A drone A drone is a bee that never has babies. Why would you want to get married and have two children? You go, oh, there he goes again. Doesn't he ever shut up about that? Listen. Half the people here are women, and half the people here, therefore, have a calling from God, if they're married, that the world hates. And so that's why I bring it up again and again and again, because I'm trying to inoculate you against the lies of the world. It is dignified to be given an additional child. It is a privilege. That's why the Bible says over and over again, children are a blessing from the Lord. Happy is the man whose quiver is full, whose cartridge belt has bullets coming out of it. He will not be ashamed when he contends with his enemies in his gates. And let me tell you, being a mother requires this kind of encouragement. Don't you think that Annie Hogue is happy today? She now has three. I called her house the other day, and let me tell you, it was not a pleasant scene. I heard it. It was cacophony, which is a large word for bedlam. But none of them were in bed. It's very, very hard for God to give you additional responsibilities if you're a mother, isn't it? Another child is like a joyful awfulness. Meryl and me, we thought we were, she, but we were pregnant, but she, all right, when we were like in our mid-40s, and there was a day of awful joy. And then it turned out she wasn't. People, you have been faithful with little things. You've been faithful with one child, I'll give you two. You've been faithful with two, I'll give you three. And then you're outnumbered. Okay, that's what my wife tells me. That was the big change. But guess what? Most of you don't know this, but some of you do. With the fourth, do you know what happens? With the fourth, the first does what? The first helps. It's not a mom and a dad all alone with four children. The first helps. And then by the time the fifth comes, the first and the second help. And then by the time you're old, there are ten of them helping you. Because most of them have probably married. In fact, there might be 30. By now, my grand, I mean, my mother-in-law, who had 10 children, has, as of now, 100 helping her. 100 descendants. And a number of her children were not fruitful. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to give you more children. Now, is that a proper application of this text? You bet it is. Now, what about men? You have been faithful with your Sunday school class, and now you're going to be an elder. You're going to be a nursing mother to the whole congregation. And that's a pain in the rear. You have no idea what a pain it is to be a nursing mother as an elder. If I were to just tell you this last week, What your shepherds did for you, you would not believe it. You really wouldn't. They're nursing mothers. Here's your privilege. You taught a Sunday school class, you stupid idiot. And now you're an elder. (laughs) Do you know what our problem is today? Our problem is that we don't love God. 
And you know why we don't love God? We don't love our God because we don't love our daddies and our mummies. Do you understand that God has ordained the human family to teach us about him? And so what should be happening is as we grow up, we should be connected by umbilical cord of affection and love to our mothers when we're a daughter and to our fathers when we're a son. So that we can't wait for the day when we're able to cook with our mother. And we can't wait for the day when we're able to get sweaty and to work with our fathers. And then when our dad says to us, well done, good and faithful son, You've been faithful with a few things, taking out the trash. Now, let's go out and drive the car. We go, yeah! (laughs) Yes! It's time to be a man. And then in a few years, he says, here's the family business. And we go, yes! But we're all a bunch of cowards. We don't live by faith. We don't love our dads. We don't want our dad's business. We can't wait to run from it. Our dads haven't worked with us. We don't love them. But do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what Jesus said about his life here on earth? He said, I must do what? The work that my father has given me, the work of my father. Now, that's the same for you women. I must do the work of my father. How do you learn to do the work of your father? You love your mother. And as you love your mother, then you learn what it is to love your heavenly father and to want to do his work. We can't just think as Christians that we can, like, jump from, like, knee-high to a grasshopper up straight to sanctification. God has ordained the human home to teach us these things. The home is not a drone work. The home is fertile. The home is... The school of sanctification. Marriage is to make you holy, not to give you recreational orgasms. Children are supposed to teach you what it is to die to yourself. They're not supposed to be an insurance policy for your old age, although by God's grace, that's what they become. Do you understand this? The home is God's gift. And then you go through the home and then you read the account. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little things. Now I'll give you much. And then we hear the second half of the reward, which is what? Enter into my joy. Do you see? It makes no sense if you don't love your father, you don't love your mother. It makes no sense if you don't love God, because then you don't want his work and you don't want his joy. But have you ever known any joy that's more complete than sharing the work of your father? It's unbelievable. The the ability God has given us to joyful the sound, word goes around, father to son to son. I must do the work of my father, Jesus says. And now Jesus here says that the two rewards are, number one, that they get more responsibility, and number two, they enter into their father's joy. And now we come to the third servant. And you and I, lacking a vision of the dignity of our father and of the work that he has for us to do, having been sold a cheap grace which is devoid of good works, devoid of fruit, Uh, being stingy as heck about the things of God, thinking that the things of God only amount to us not committing fornication, not sleeping around, that's how we'd say it, not committing adultery, not having an affair, uh, tithing, uh, going to church most Sundays, uh, not cursing and using the finger, just honking behind the wheel of the car, you know, All these sins that we avoid, all right, we think that's the Christian life. We just avoid sins and carry carry the right Bible for the right church, all right? And, And so we're stingy. We take the gifts God has given us. We put them in the ground. We hide them. And then we come to God and we say what? 
The one also, verse 24, who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Do you resemble that implication? That's me. That's us. Well, God's harsh, you know. And there's so many ways of failing. There's so many dangers. I'm going to wait to speak of Christ until I've been perfect, you know. And today I really screwed up. You know, I was out on the soccer field and I lost my temper and I got yellow carded, you know. And I better not be a Christian today because it's better to, to venture nothing than to do something and fail. And so you take the soccer team, you take the locker room at school, you take the dorm room, you take the lecture lectern, you take the papers you write, you take the engines you work on, you take the children, and absolutely everything is aimed at never, ever making a fool of yourself. Never making a mistake. Now, what do they refer to the third child as in most Christian marriages? Mistake. Marriage bed isn't a place of talents to be used. I used to clean for a living, and I went into a lot of homes that had covered the furniture and the carpet with clear plastic slip covers. And I hated cleaning those homes. You'd go into the home, everything would be pristine, and then you'd proceed to lift up the plastic slip covers and clean what was underneath them. And generally, I like to see what I'm doing. And there is no ability to see anything when you clean things that are covered with plastic slip covers. Nothing changes. It's Bill Murray at the beginning of What About Bob? You know, washing his hands for the 30th time. They weren't dirty. And this is most Christian homes. You, you may have, you may not be so gauche as to have slip covers, but the marriage bed and the dining room table. Many of you have a pristine dining room table, and you have never, ever failed at that dining room table. <laughs> Am I the only one laughing? You know? Your car. Oh, your car. Oh, yes, the car. <laughs> that beautiful car. It's never been loaned out, and so it never has a scratch. Oh, yes, Master, I hit your talent. Come on, guys. Is this you? Yeah, I mean, I might not get it right. It might not be slip covers. It might not be your car. It might not be your marriage bed, but... You are living a safe life. You got everything prophylactically covered. All right. What did God give you marriage for? What did he give you a car for? Did he give you a car so that you could have a certain image? Is that what God gave you a car? How about your gift of discernment? Did he give you your gift of discernment so you could deny you had it and hide it and use it then when it comes to diagnosing cats and dogs? Amazing how many vets and doctors are absolutely stupendous at diagnosing the problems of animals. But when it comes to truth, they have absolutely no ability to see anything. Right? Right? Come on, come on. Yes, yes, that's true. So, for instance, let's think about this. God has given us truths in Scripture, and one of those truths is the truth of black ceilings. Okay? Scripture tells us that black ceilings are the right ceilings to have. But the whole world hates black ceilings. 
We know that God has said, you shall all have black ceilings, but the world hates black ceilings. Now, there is another truth in Scripture, which is that God loves blue chairs. And the wonderful thing is that the whole world loves blue chairs. So where does every Christian stand? I'm a blue chair man. You know, and the whole world is spitting and vomiting and kicking and throwing all kinds of wickedness on the black ceilings. And I'm a blue chair man. And you go before God and you say, what's my return on investment? I'm a blue chair man. What about the black ceilings? I really thought I could do more for you, God, if I was a blue chair man, because people are prepared for blue chairs. What about the black ceiling? Well, God, there are, there are some nasty dudes who have a duty for black chairs. I mean, you have given them a, a nasty calling, but I really felt I had more of a golf course country club ministry. You know, a, a blue chair ministry. You know? And so after a long time, the master comes back. And the one who had five now had ten. The one who had two now had four. And then there was the blue chair man. Master, I knew that you were a harsh taskmaster. Who was the harsh taskmaster? A thief thinks everybody steals. He was only talking about himself. Had, had the master really bruised and beaten the five and ten talent man, men? Did they leave crushed? Were they sad? No. He wasn't a harsh taskmaster. In fact, part of the privilege was that they were to enter his joy. And then over here is the blue chair man. <laughs> you, I'm sorry. I laugh because I'm observing myself as I preach. And I'm like getting myself, you know. That's why I laugh. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you, but you're not laughing. <laughs> but I just think we're so priceless. We're so pathetic. I, I'm so pathetic because what have we done? Well, with our children, we have made them idols instead of making them fruitful for God. We, we hold on to them like that. We don't send them out into the world. We don't send them to Africa. Our daughters want to get married and be pure when they get married. And we say, but a middle-class reform pastor has daughters that go through college and get a degree. I mean, I'm not going to have a daughter who, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on, you know. I mean, daughter, come on, don't be fruitful for God, you know. Be fruitful for me and my great reputation. And you say, oh, Tim, there you go again. You know, and I say, hey, listen, this is me. So then my daughter looks at me and she says, Daddy. And what she ends up saying is, do you want us to please God or do you want us to please you? And then I go, oh, Okay. And meanwhile, David and Stephen have both been rebuking me and exhorting me to do the right thing. And I don't want to do the right thing because I'm embarrassed to have a daughter that doesn't have a college degree. Okay, is this true? Is this me? Is this me? Uh, uh, uh. This is me, right? What about you? Do you really want your children to honor God or do you want them to get a reputation for you? What is it? Come on. And those of you who are students, what, what, what's, your, what's your goal in life? Is your goal to bring glory to God? What about your major? What about your career? What about your work? What is it? Is it about God or is it about us? What is the church supposed to be? Will there ever be a time where we see that the interests of middle class educated Christians are not the interests of God? 
Will there ever be a point at which we admit that there may be in competition, may be mutually antithetical, maybe opposed to each other? Do we really think that God's methods have changed and that what he really needs today is blue chair men who have degrees from good universities and then master's degrees and then PhDs and, and all kinds of money and beautiful cars and beautiful homes and beautiful summer homes and the women sit on the couch and say, bring me that I can drink. And the prophet Amos calls them, woe to you cows of passion. Who sit on your sofas and say, to your husbands and slaves, bring to me that I may drink. It's a quote from Scripture. Is that not us? At some point, people, we have to decide whether we're pleasing God or ourselves. Whether our talents are for him or for us or for our parents. What we're going to do with our talents, what we're going to do with that truth that everybody hates, is it going to be our joy so that we can be welcomed in to the kingdom of God and Jesus can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little things, black ceiling churches. And now I'm going to give you a host of responsibility. You're going to rule the nations. Enter my joy. Do you want that? If you want that, you're going to have to stop being that wicked slave. And you're going to have to start making an ass of yourself. Because that's what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. Now, I'll just end with a little testimony and then a verse. I've spent my life running from what people would think of me. I'm hypersensitive to what you think of me. Trust me, I am. I can see it in your faces right now. All right? That's the way God made me. Many pastors are oblivious. I'm hypersensitive. Okay, I've spent my life running from the disapproval of my people and other people in the community. That's how God's made me. Every once in a while, though, God gives me the grace to actually use a talent. It's mind-boggling. One looks at it from afar. Oh, he's using a talent. That's how little I'm involved in that decision. Anytime I've actually used a talent of God and become a horse's patush in the sight of everyone, I guarantee you, guarantee you that it's that precise moment when what? When from the ground there blossoms red life that shall end with faith. Those are the most joyful, the most fruitful, the most God-ordained ecstatic experiences of my life. What is the greatest joy of a woman that will cause her to forget the pain that is awful. She holds the child, and the Bible says she forgets the pain. When we give ourselves to God, and we're willing to be fools for the sake of Christ, at that precise moment we become fruitful, and not until then. I don't care what you think. If you want to be cool and fruitful for God, you will never, ever, ever be fruitful. But if you're willing to be a complete idiot for the sake of Jesus Christ, it's that precise moment where you will begin to bear fruit, and it will be fruit that lasts. I will end with this verse from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, says this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. They're blessed because their deeds follow with them. If you think you're a bad mother, you are. But you give your motherhood to God, and God 
will produce unbelievable fruit. From your bad motherhood, if you think you're a bad worker, bad studier, you are. You give the one talent that God has given you, instead of looking at the people with ten and being jealous, you give that one talent to God. The good thing about life is that it's not a game that's immediately ended the minute you hear this sermon. This sermon is for those of you with one talent, that you take that talent and you use it in your pathetic little way, and God will bring glory to himself from that one talent. And then when you're in heaven and you say, I was hopeless. I wanted men instead of women, so I never married. You know, you, on the blog, this what, what's his name? What's his name? Ray Bolts, you know, gave in to the battle this last week. Came out. He's gay. He's dumb. Right. I, I wanted men instead of women. I was. And and. I had cancer, and, and then I flunked out of my college, and, and I played computer games, and, and I couldn't have children. I miscarried, and, and I had acne, and I was fat, and I never could be an elder because I was a woman, and, and my life was just nothing. There was nothing at all. Nothing, and then my husband left me. But I prayed. I taught Sunday school. I cooked. I went to visit. It was nothing, but but I but I did what I could. And the Bible says what? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them.